Hey, everyone, before we get started, the union. Join the union.us. We need every one of you out there. Join the union.us. Join the pro democracy army that is going to take it to the anti democratic candidates this fall, that's going to support the pro democracy candidates and groups that are going to help us defend this great, messy, noisy, loud American experiment. We can do it, but we can't do it without you. Join the union.us, sign up today and get involved. And now, on to the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, now available in paperback. Stuart, welcome back. Great to be here, Reed. Thanks for asking me to the party. So, Stuart, I want to go back to something you and I have discussed more times than I can count probably in the last two years, and that is the state of the Republican Party, the National Republican Party. It's continued an accelerating descent into, I don't even know what the word is. I'm sure the Germans have a word for it. You know, what they stand for, what they don't stand for, if they stand for anything. We're going to talk about vis-a-vis how we see them and the threat to democracy, especially as the 2022 midterms draw near. So let's get going on it. So in the last month, Stuart, we've had the GOP be pro-Putin and sort of anti-Putin. They've been pro-Trump, and now they're nervously pro-Trump. For decades, it was the anti-tax party, and now Rick Scott, head of the Republican Senatorial Committee, says that they are the pro-tax party, at least for, quote, everybody having skin in the game. We have seen them in the last week in these confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson illustrate in real time everything you wrote in your book. I mean, have we achieved the nadir? Is there room to fall? Like, Give us your sense of where they are today. I think that a lot of the stuff that we said when we were both drawn to the party is true. Character is destiny. And the problem with the Republican Party is now it has no character. It exists for one reason, and that is to beat Democrats. So whatever Democrats are for, they're going to be against. You have Joe Biden, who is doing, I think, historically important task well one that you can say that he's prepared for his entire life, rallying forces of democracy to fight the greatest threat to peace since probably World War II, more so than the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they're trying to find reasons to not support Joe Biden and yet somehow still support democracy. When you don't believe in anything but election, you end up being a very hollow party. I mean, we used to say that about candidates. If you don't stand for anything but re-election, you don't stand for anything. And that's where the Republican Party is now. I mean, I just think about in the days after Putin invaded Ukraine and President Biden stood in the well of the House and all these Republicans were suddenly wearing blue and yellow lapel pins or scarves or pocket squares or whatever it is. And now they seem to have cooled on that. And Stuart, it seems to me that They have used the confirmation hearings of Judge Jackson, who, if confirmed, and I think she probably will be confirmed, would serve as the first black female on the court as a way to move away from a discussion that they're very uncomfortable with, which is how deep a hole they are vis-a-vis Russia and Putin, especially when you have the two leaders of the party, Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump, all in for them to get back to safer ground for them, which is barely veiled, if veiled at all, racial overtones. 
Yeah, I mean, I think they'd rather fight a cultural war than a war for democracy. Well, one they believe in, one they don't. Actually, I'm not even sure what they believe in. You know, Ted Cruz was waving books that were taught at the school where justice was on the board of the private school. I'd be very interested in see the curriculum and the books that are in the library of the private school where Ted Cruz's kids go to, which is a very good school. And I imagine they have very good books. And I imagine they study people that he was accusing the judge of actually being supportive of a school that is teaching. Well, and also remember, I'm, I'm almost positive that Cruz's kids' school required masks and vaccinations. Oh, absolutely. As does Georgetown Prep, which has kind of become the de facto stepping stone, apparently, to the Supreme Court if you're a white guy. Listen, I, I think that there are gravitational forces that pull the Republican Party as it exists now to a lot of what they see in Putin. They see a strong man. They're attracted to that. They see a country in which he asserts there are no gay people. They're attracted to that. They're attracted to a world in which there are no women in power. They're attracted to that. And they see Putin as sort of a Christian nationalist, which occasionally when I raise this, my old Republican friends point out, well, you know, Putin's not really a Christian. And my answer to that is, have you met Donald Trump? It's the idea of it that is appealing to him. Plus, the fundamental truth of Putin's Russia is there is no truth. And that is really the defining characteristic of the Republican Party now. They don't like the world as it is, particularly as it's becoming at a fairly rapid rate. So they want to redefine the world as what they would like it to be. We're not going to talk about racism because there's not racism a country in which, I don't know, I think it's 85% of the wealth is still owned by white people, but we're not going to talk about systematic racism. So it's a denial of reality for an attractive fantasy, which is one in which they know their place. They're at the top of the pecking order. They are not threatened by cultural change because there is no cultural change. And it's one in which they would like to live in, and they're trying to, to the extent they can, reshape the country to fit that strange vision they have. Stuart, I was reading something on social media today, and it was a story about Russian soldiers calling home from Ukraine, saying, you should have seen how green it was. You should have seen the roads. You should have seen how modern everything was and how nice everything was. And the idea is that for some of these guys, for some of these kids is what they are, it's the first time they'd seen paved roads. It's a very similar reaction to what many of the Red Army soldiers said as they entered Germany in 1945. Their question, though, was, why did you come to us when you already had all this? But Putin went to them and reminded his own people, like, they live in a third world country. So I guess, Stuart, to extend your, your idea of, like, the pro-Putin thing is, like, does it stop at just ideology or is it like, well, you live in the wrong state, so your roads can go to hell in a handbasket and your water won't be clean and good luck on the power? Because I think that's the other thing, too, is sometimes we have trouble connecting the idea of democratic values and institutions to the benefits that they provide to its citizens. You're touching on something that's like a pet passion of mine, and that is the states where the white politicians rail the most about the federal government and spending overspending in the federal government tend to be the states that are most dependent by far on the federal government. Like my home state of Mississippi, you have the governor, Tate Reeves, 
posting on social media about how we have to cut government spending. And 40% of the budget in Mississippi is from the federal government. This is easy, Tate, to say you're not going to take the Fed's money anymore. See how far that goes. See what the, the roads look like and the schools look like in a couple of years. Right. No, I remember being in Kansas a couple of years ago, three or four years ago now, and meeting with some folks there. These were some Democrats in a very, very red county. And they said that they just had a referendum on federal money that was coming into the county. And it went down because the hardest of the hardcore Republicans in the county said, we don't want the new water treatment facility that the money came from. We want to send it to go build a wall at the border. What I found, if you're working for a politician who's attacked for spending, if you get to the specifics of what they would like to cut, it's usually where people are go, well, no, I am for that. You know, I worked for Thad Cochran in his primary, the last primary he had against a state senator named Chris McDaniel. Chris McDaniel, who was favored by a lot of Washington groups, was running on a campaign of cutting federal spending. And we crushed him by pointing out, OK, what do you want to cut? You want to cut this school budget? You want to cut this road? You want to cut this water treatment plant? And, you know, people like voters, like all of us, are hypocritical. They want it both ways. But the thing that bothers me the most about this is, were it not for the people who get up and go to work in states that are more economically successful, like California or New York, where their tax dollars go to help states like Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, were it not for these you know, coastal elite states that these Republicans are constantly attacking, they wouldn't have a tax basis. They'd have to have like 90% state taxes to make up for it. So instead of like being grateful that a state like California is so economically, what is it, the ninth largest economy in the world? They try to score political points on it. Well, first of all, the one thing they always want to cut is the Department of Education, if they can remember to decide that they want to cut it. But also, I think, back to what you said at the top, is they don't care about anything. And because they are part of a, I'll call it a politico-economic media elite in those states, that they will be fine. And they don't truly care. And where does the Putin parallel, for lack of a better way to put it, come into play is that your road won't get fixed, is that your water treatment won't get repaired, the lead in the water won't get removed, the power plant won't get fixed or won't get cleaned, you won't have clean air, you won't have clean water. You know, these are the basics of life, right? This is not like me being some greeniac here. This is like the sorts of things that why does government do them? Because it only makes sense for the government to do them because I can't fix my road by myself. I could, I guess, if I had the money but I'm not going to fix my town's water system or my town's electrical grid. That's always been the thing is that we're all in this together. And now what they're saying is, well, y'all are in this together. I'm over here. I want to get rid of everything. I know it's bad for you. You know it's bad for you, but I've got you hooked on white nationalism, hating black people, being afraid of this or that. So, you know, we'll just be all in on this Faustian bargain together because ultimately, Stuart, I'm going to get mine. Yeah, you know, all the years I worked in the Republican Party, Reed, I always had this nagging little voice in my head that said, isn't there a contradiction between the party that hates government wanting to run government? <laughs> and I would try to suppress this, you know, like, no, no, no. It's like, we all know we're going to die. We just don't think about it a lot. But that, I think, is the fundamental paradox of the Republican Party, that in a policy sense, there is, in theory, a conservative argument for smaller government that is more effective, that is more efficient, that will appeal to those who are 
certainly at the lower end of the economic spectrum. That ideal exists, but the Republicans really failed to do the hard policy work to come up with the theory and practice of government that would make that vision come true. I go back to that there really is no conservative theory of government now that anyone can credibly articulate. Well, and if you think back to, you know, probably starting in the 80s, certainly in the 90s, when you had the American Legislative Exchange Council and these sorts of groups that systematically went after winning state legislatures, ostensibly on behalf, not of the people, but of business, because they said, okay, well, if we go and capture all these seats, then eventually these people will rise to be attorneys general, lieutenant governors, governors, and it'll all be good for business. It wasn't for smaller government. It was for crony capitalism. And as the country changes, where you have those 15 and under, the majority are non-white, where you have a country where the Trump coalition was 85% white and the country now is 57% white and decreasing. So by, they say, 2045, we will be a majority-minority country. That failure to become the aspirational party to really be those things that we used to talk about for you're my boss, Governor Bush and President Bush, with compassionate conservatism, it really never came to reality. Now, you can make a case, and it's sort of a parlor game with a lot of us who worked for President Bush, had there not been 9-11, could he have done this? And I think you can say the compassionate conservative agenda died on 9-11. You know, that concept, as you know, where he worked with a lot of Democrats. I mean, his mentor was a Democratic lieutenant governor. Right. Bob Bullock. Yeah. And what is the first big major piece of legislation he passed? No Child Left Behind. That he passed with Teddy Kennedy. With Teddy Kennedy standing over his right shoulder at a signing ceremony, which now, you know, would be evidence one at political war tribunal. They would submit this and go, here, we, we can prove this man is a traitor. He's in the same room with Teddy Kennedy signing a piece of legislation they both like. And that sense of government as something that is supposed to work, not be something that is a mechanism for promoting your own personal power, has really, for the most part, at the federal level, failed. Now, you still have these governors out there in these blue states that are wildly successful. Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Larry Hogan in Maryland, Phil Scott in Vermont. You don't hear that much about them because they actually go do the work. And that's why Democrats elect them, because they're like, OK, they're going to be good for business. They're going to watch the money because we know even if we're Democrats, we know Democrats aren't good at watching the money and they're going to leave everybody alone. You know, if what was true about what the Republican Party says, like, let's run it like a business. I mean, if this was a business, you go, hey, look, these guys are selling our product in the hardest market. What can we learn from them? Teach us, teach us, teach us. If Republicans could carry Maryland and Massachusetts in a presidential race, Last time we did, I guess, was Reagan, right? If we could do that, we could own the world. So something's working there. How do we study it? But on the flip side of that, though, now, Stuart, with Republican leaders in Washington, D.C., like a Josh Holmes, who is the right-hand man to Senator Mitch McConnell, he said, if we could just match the money with the crazy, we could have a governing coalition, right? So they flipped it on its head. They're not learning from it. In fact, they're diving deeper into the hole. But it's all about co-option, right? It's not about convincing. It's about co-option. And it's not about a governing philosophy. There are words that they say, but it is not put in practice. 
And when you look at the efforts that were made, be it entitlement zones or ideas that you know, have more child tax credits or something that would appeal to lower income, Republicans never put it together as a theory of government. And, you know, it's why I've felt that we are most likely in for a period of center-left government because a theory of government usually beats a non-theory. Now, I could be just as wrong about that as I'm wrong about Donald Trump in 2016. But in my mind, that there would be a need for the Republican Party to collapse as it did in California. And out of that come a new sense of what is a sane center-right party going to be. And I hope that's still what's happening. But I think this embrace of autocracy becomes an entirely different theory of government. You don't need a conservative versus liberal theory of government when you're an autocrat. You know, it was the sort of if you can't beat them, join them theory, right? Like they couldn't beat him because they didn't understand him. I'm talking about Trump, of course. And then they got intoxicated by it because they saw, wait, this guy says and does whatever he wants and he gets away with it. There's no sanction for him. Even when he loses, these people love him more. Look, you know, I work for Romney. You may have heard we lost. And then the party went through that so-called autopsy, which I give uh, Ryan Spreefer's credit for. It's always difficult to be self-critical. The conclusions of that were not profound, but necessary. Needed to appeal to more non-whites, younger voters, particularly non-white voters, more women, particularly those women who worked outside the home. And this was presented not just as a political need to get more votes, but as a moral mandate that if you're going to earn the right to govern this big, confusing, loud country. Everybody said, okay, great, we'll do that. You had these 17 candidates running. And then Trump won, and it was like, you know, sort of an audible sigh of relief, like, thank God we don't have to pretend we care about this stuff. It was like somebody saying, look, you can eat all this chocolate cake, and you're still going to lose weight. You go, thank God. But let me ask you, Stuart, about the George W. Bush Republican. One, does it exist? Two, if they do, where are they? Who are they? But three, here in Utah last week, Spencer Cox, the governor, vetoed an anti-trans kids and sports bill. The Utah legislature came back into special session specifically to override the veto. But in his statement, he was thoughtful, conservative, empathic. And this was the bottom line. This is about four kids. There are four trans kids in Utah that play sports. None of them are going to win championships. None of them are going to be finalists. And he said, why do we want to inflict such cruelty on so few? I was blown away by it, by the thoughtfulness and the caring. And he said, I don't understand, but that doesn't mean I don't want to. I thought it was incredible and totally out of character for a Republican leader in this country. Look, I think that piece that was written for The Atlantic by Adam Sewer, uh, Cruelty is the Point, during the first couple of years of the Trump administration, I think is going to stand as one of the definitive pieces of the Trump era. Something went wrong in the Republican Party that it not only appealed to a certain mean-spirited person who clearly has something broken within them, be it a Stephen Miller, Ted Cruz, be it a Steve Bannon, Josh Hawley. These are broken people in some ways. And it not only appealed to those people, it elevated them. Donald Trump is a perfect example. Government for them becomes a way to work through these personal issues. These were the guys who nobody liked in high school, and now they're getting their revenge. 
If you ever wanted to know what happened to the kids that were kind of maladjusted, who was really important, they'd be elected homeroom president. Odds are they ended up on the Senate Judiciary Committee on the Republican <laughs> side. That's where they were. You could quit wondering. I laugh because if I wouldn't, I'd cry. <laughs> it's so true. It's like the only parties, you know, it was only your mom insisted they'd be invited to parties. Why anybody invited them to parties? But they found common cause with so many of those folks, to your point, who were otherwise disconnected and disaffected and disassociated for whatever the reason might be. But, you know, I don't think it had to be that way. It is often used as a reason that Trump needed to be the way he was, which I find one of the most dangerous. Like, you can't win if you don't do this, right? Well, I mean, George Bush, for the most part, wasn't like that. I think we played to the dark side too much. I think particularly with the same-sex marriage amendment in 2004. I remember him giving that speech because I think I was at the campaign by then. He's standing in the Rose Garden, and you could tell, Stuart, he didn't want to do it. You could tell that Carl told him he had to, that it had to be a stop to the social conservatives, and you could see that there was not one iota of his being behind those remarks. As opposed in 2000, and, you know, you were the one executing this plan in advance, you know, whenever we were sitting around in headquarters and you had that very often moment of like, you know, what should you do next week? The fault was always to go to a school and Governor George Bush would light up. You saw him. I mean, he would have spent all day there. Ironic that it was that part of him that ended reading a book to kids on 9-11. I've thought about that a lot. It is cinematic that at that moment, doing something that he truly, well, first he knew a lot about education. He was married to a librarian. You know, they started the Texas Book Festival. You could see just a part of his humanity come alive in those situations. I think had he led the party without 9-11, we could have transformed the party. I think if Mitt Romney won, a lot of things wouldn't have happened. We certainly, I don't think, would have had this naivete about Russia. But there's not a mean bone in Mitt's body. He's someone who knows that he's in life's lottery is extraordinarily lucky. And there's a kindness about him. I mean, one of the first things when I started working for him, I don't talk out of school here, but I kept discovering all these things he had done for other people that they never wanted publicized. And if you go to Boston, you don't find anything with the Romney's name on it. And yet they supported everything from, you know, the Humane Society to the MCA. Let me fast forward now, because you talk about Bush, both 43 and 41. Prescott Bush, 41's father, who served as U.S. Senator. Governor Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney, Governor Romney of Michigan, right? These were all people of great privilege, but who saw it as a duty and responsibility to serve because they had been that fortunate. Governor Jed Bush, too. Now the Republican Party is, I take office not to serve, but to be served, not to do right by others, but to do right by me and what I want. A hundred percent. So you get someone like Josh Hawley, right, who goes to this ritzy prep school, then goes to Stanford, then teaches at St. George's in London, which is founded in the 15th century, and then goes to Yale Law School and writes a very good little biography of Teddy Roosevelt published by Yale University Press. And it runs against the elites. It's like, really, Josh, you're running against the elites. I mean, you know, instead of I am the beneficiary of this great opportunity to have learned and to acquire knowledge. And 
how can I help others with that? And there is a responsibility in being one of those few people who had the chance to have this experience. Of the things in your book, there's obviously the inherent racial through line. But I thought the other part, too, that you wrote about was not just the racial animus, but the mythology of the pull yourself up by the bootstraps thing. That is the failure of the Republican Party in a policy sense to appeal to those at the lower economic strata. So it is often said, particularly by Democrats, why is it that whites at the bottom of the economic status vote against their own self-interest? Why do they vote for Republicans who in turn do as you were saying, turn around and pass legislation that disadvantages them? The only reason for that is white identity politics, grievance politics which is the essence of what the Republican Party now is. So let me ask you this. So let's talk about the voters that we would call the Bannon line, right? Those six to eight, 10, maybe even 12 percent of Republican voters that probably look talk like us. Right. And Rick and I and, and Trippy were in San Diego a couple of weeks back and we were at a lunch and there were a couple of guys, very, probably 10, 12 people. And there were a couple of guys at the table who were really taking us to task for going after Republicans. And these were both Democratic guys until one of them said, you don't understand. I have friends that are Republicans. They don't talk like this. They don't act the way you're talking. They aren't the people you're talking about. And I was like, it was a wake up call. It's always good to sort of step out of the self-satisfied bubble and, and remind that there are other people. But so still, I believe them. These were stand up guys, incredibly charitable, philanthropic individuals, right? Give a lot to their county, a lot to their city the majority of their time, and I would venture to say a lot of their money. So if that's the case, and I, I believe it probably is, how do we communicate with those people? Because what their friends would probably say is, well, look, I don't like Donald Trump, and I don't like the Republican Party, but I'm no Democrat. I think that's the great failure of the Republican Party in 2015, that when Donald Trump emerged, it was a moral test for the party. Do you really believe these things that you say about being more inclusive? Or do you support a candidate who, on what, December 5th, comes out for a Muslim ban, which is unconstitutional? I mean, I think parties have to serve a circuit breaker function. And it didn't. It just rolled over. It embraced this because they thought they could win. Classic Faustian bargain. And the failure is in the leadership of the Republican Party that they didn't stand and fight Donald Trump which is why it led me to no other conclusion than to call my book, It Was All a Lie, because I think ultimately you believe that which you will fight for. And what was being asked of them in the history of sacrifice was pretty low. I mean, it's like in 2020, all they had to do is say who won the presidential race in the United States of America. It was not like, then you're going to go like hop out of this boat and go charge this machine gun nest. Get your comm shop to put out a three-sentence statement congratulating the president of the United States. That's how it's done in this thing that we call democracy. And I think it was that collapse of what the party said it was about that I don't really think we've seen anything like it except the collapse of communism. Communism said it was about all this stuff. You know, it was about, you know, comrades and lifting people up and all this. And, you know, it was just a joke. I mean, watch Chernobyl. And at a certain point, that just collapsed on itself. It's not that the Republican Party that we believed in lost the battle. It's that it never fought. And there's a few redoubts now. Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, 
You know, Mitt Romney became the first Republican, first senator ever to vote to impeach a member of his own party. As you know, you're one of the experts on this, how difficult it is to form a third party. Well, and neither party wants it, right? Let's be clear. Like the barriers to entry are are built by both parties in this. But let me ask you this, because you mentioned Chernobyl. I was just watching a clip of it the other day, and it's during the investigation and the hearing, and, and the gentleman who's the lead character says, we are a system built on lies, and every lie told owes a debt to the truth. And that's what he was talking about. That's how they ended up with the RBMK reactor that blew up in a place that's now, you know, the Russians were freaking, you know, shelling to try and break the sarcophagus around it. But is that what happens to the Republican Party, one? And two, does it happen soon enough that we can help the rest of the country get past it. Because my fear is that if it happens while they're in power, God knows what else happens. This is why I think a lot of us believe that the only issue is the preservation of democracy. So as you often say, we can get back to arguing about this other stuff. And I really believe, and it is incredibly painful for me to believe this, that the Republican Party has become an anti-democratic force. It is organized. It has a propaganda wing, a finance wing. It has the support of a major party. And I can't say that, I mean, we've talked about this a lot, that they're not going to win. This is why, you know, I'm often asked, well, I used to be asked anyway, well, what if Bernie Sanders was the nominee running against Trump? What would you have done? And my answer is, I would have gone door to door for Sanders. I remember having the conversation when we thought it was going to be, I'm like, he'll be the guy. If it's Sanders, he's the guy. I mean, first of all, Sanders was to the right on Russia of Donald Trump. I mean, he had a honeymoon in Russia, but he didn't marry Putin. And I would love to be able to like get wired up to a lie detector test and be asked, is the future of the Republican Party more likely Liz Cheney or Marjorie Taylor Greene? But I know I'd fail. Everyone, McCarthy, McConnell, every Republican elected leader who supported Trump in 20, as far as I know, continue to say they'll support him if he's a nominee. Even after one-sixth, even after we've learned everything that we've learned about a concerted effort to overthrow the government of the United States, they're still going to support him, they say. I mean, how do you call yourself an American and do that and say that you really care about America? I mean, you know, this guy is a horrible human being. He's someone who tried to overthrow the democratic process, was supported by Putin actively, and then delivered as much as he could would have delivered more had he won again. And yet you're going to vote for that person. You'll support that person because your side will win. Maybe on the Republican team, but you're not on the American team. No. And that is why we are here and doing what we do every day, Stuart, and we'll continue doing it. Before we get out of here, Stuart, where can folks find you on social media? Unfortunately, I'm on Twitter. Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. God help us. Right. And uh, as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Please, if you have not yet, I've seen the numbers and I know you're not signing up for the union. Join the union.us. What Stuart and I are talking about right now is the stuff that you all can go out and make happen in your state, in your county, in your neighborhood, in your community. 45,000 votes in three states, gang. That's what Joe Biden won by. That's all he won by. We don't need everybody, but we need everybody we can in the places we need them. Join the union.us. Make it happen. Stuart, I want to thank you for joining me. Everybody, I hope you guys stay safe. I will see you soon and have a great one. Thanks again to everyone for listening. 
Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.